Welcome to the Industrial IoT Spotlight, your number one spot for insight from industrial IoT thought leaders who are transforming businesses today with your host, Eric Walenza. Welcome back to the Industrial IoT Spotlight podcast. I'm your host, Eric Walenza, CEO of IoT One the consultancy that helps companies create value from data to accelerate growth. And our guest today is Alex Mosen, founder and CEO of Applico. Applico specializes in helping companies build and invest in platform business models. In this talk, we discuss the challenges that traditional businesses face in developing or participating in platform business models and the strategies that they can take to improve their chance of success. We also explored the digital business models that are most impactful for industrial companies. If you find these conversations valuable, please leave us a comment and a five-star review. And if you'd like to share your company's story or recommend a speaker, email us at team at iot1.com. Finally, if you have an IoT research strategy or training initiative that you'd like to discuss, you can email me directly at erik.walenza at iot1.com. Thank you. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Alex, you've got a really interesting uh, background, and, and we can cover a couple different aspects of that. But one of that is that you have your own podcast. Just really quickly, what's the, what's the backstory there? Why did, you know, how did you get into podcasting, and, and what's it about? It all started with this book I wrote called Modern Monopolies, or co-authored rather. Macmillan published in 2016, which really at the time was the defining text on the platform business model, what we call this marketplace model. These platform businesses, we've seen them, FAMGA epitomized that, but many other platform businesses follow in their stead. These are very asset-light businesses, they have a winner-take-all dynamic, which is the name of our podcast. And the reason why they have a winner-take-all dynamic is because they have, a, they have two customers. They have a consumer on one side, and they have a producer on the other side. But they're actually both considered customers. The producers are supplying the inventory or the asset which is being consumed. And the platform creates value by facilitating the exchange of that value. So it's actually it's actually a business model that has existed for thousands of years. If you think about a bazaar in ancient Rome, connecting merchants and, and customers. But in today's environment, in the 21st century economy, that business model is essentially supercharged. And because of technology and data and, and people's kind of changing user behavior, it has propelled that business model to be the most dominant business model of our time. So we wanted to kind of extend the the lifetime of the book and then start a podcast where we were able to kind of talk about all the frameworks and and trends and things that we essentially predicted correctly. 2016 no one wanted to call. We got written up by the Financial Times. Financial Times didn't want to use the word mon monopoly to describe Google and Apple and Amazon, etc., right? So, wow, how, how things have changed in just a handful of years. And, uh, and that's really what the show talks about is how to fight back and win against big tech and, and really highlight some of the transgressions by these 
platform business models when they get to modern monopoly status and highlight how they they do create a lot of value for society, but at the same time, they do start to abuse their power. And how do they do that? And how can we help keep it in check? Okay. Okay. Interesting. So you're looking at this both from the standpoint of how do you defend your your business or your industry against these platforms, the, the kind of dominant platforms? And on the other hand, how can you as a business, to some extent, build your own platform, I suppose? You know, maybe in a particular niche, right? Not necessarily on the Google scale. That's exactly right. If you if you want to defend yourself from this, so on today's show, we're going to talk much more about kind of the industrial sectors, right? If you look at what Amazon has done to B two C, right? If Amazon does to B two B what they did to B two C, it's going to be a really bad situation, right? There is such an imbalance in how dominant Amazon has become on the consumer side of things. And who do these platform monopolies take advantage of? It's actually not the consumer. It's actually the producer. It's actually the supplier. That's who gets squeezed when Amazon needs to make their quarterly earnings or you know show some more dollars falling to the bottom line. It comes from the suppliers and the producers. And there's a myriad of examples of how that's happening in the U.S., India, there's an amazing story in the past few months, but Amazon is cutting out third-party sellers directly and just going straight to manufacturers. Amazon is then cutting out manufacturers directly with their own product, you know, white label Amazon Basics product lines, cramming down third-party listings in favor of their own, forcing you to buy ads, right? Every which way, and it's not just Amazon, right? The other platform monopolies are doing this also just in in their own way. It's the suppliers who get the short end of the stick over over the medium to long term. And how to combat that is to understand what you're competing against is basically something very new and different. And so you need to A, understand that, how it works. And then B, you need to start to actually do your own version of it to some degree, right? Maybe it means you don't do it all yourself. But you need to start to lean into this world and embrace some new ways of doing things. Otherwise, if you stay stagnant, then you are a very easy target for the tech powers to have their way with you. Yeah, and maybe we should unravel this term platform because it's it's really a you know it's a it's a complex term, right? So you have using Amazon as an example, you have Amazon, this kind of digital bazaar, which you know anybody who's selling anything, whether you know certainly B two C and, and potentially also moving into B two B, you're going to be to some extent um, playing on one of these platforms. Same here in China, you've got um, you know Taobao from Alibaba, and then you also have a kind of B two B version of that. But then these companies are also building different category of platform, which is kind of the IoT platform. So you've got uh, AWS, uh, Alibaba Cloud, kind of a, a Chinese version. You've got Amazon Greengrass, which is you know kind of the the IoT solution under AWS, and so it, that's a very different dynamic. It's not necessarily uh, there's some marketplace dynamic also there, right, where you put apps on AWS. So there's also a marketplace dynamic, but it's also kind of a, you know it's your underlying data management system, and that also has similar. You know, it's a different system, but it has similar dynamics in terms of scalability, in terms of kind of monopolistic features. In that, if we're talking about industrial, it starts to get you know a, a bit closer, especially once you start getting like Amazon, you know, uh, uh, Greengrass 
just get a bit a bit closer to the core operations, closer to the ground. How do you view that category of, of platform? In the book, we we actually identify about eight different types of platform business models. Amazon has two very large types, product marketplace, which I think is pretty straightforward, and then a, what we call a development platform, which is where AWS would fall, that's where Salesforce would fall, that's where iOS and Android would fall. And the development platform is enabling third-party developers to create software that then the consumers can use and pay for, right? There are other types, probably not as relevant to today to today's conversation, like content platforms, payment platforms, service marketplaces, which which may be relevant, communication platforms, and uh, investment platforms. There's one major difference between those two categories: a product marketplace or a service marketplace. We call these essentially kind of exchange versus maker platforms, basically. A product marketplace has a finite amount of of inventory which can be consumed from any given listing, right? It's more of a one-to-one transaction type versus if you think about a development platform or a content platform, right? That app, that video, that can be consumed many, many, many times. Actually, that's the whole point of the platform is to help get massive scale and adoption and consumption of really that same produced good. And so when you think about, again, how do these platform businesses actually operate? What makes them successful? Just right there, two very big differences. Yes, all would be considered a platform business model, but what makes you successful when you have a more finite amount of inventory to be exchanged versus a a one-to-many model kind of on the development or content platform side does change a lot of the nuance. And that's ultimately what makes or breaks your ability to scale and continue to scale successfully. Gotcha. And so you mentioned uh, that you categorize eight. If we're looking at B2B, what would you say are the most relevant platform models for the industrial or the B2B environment? Yeah, probably product marketplaces, development platforms, and then service marketplaces. Maybe some payment platforms in there too. We are seeing a lot of new payment models coming into the foray. But yeah, those those few would be where I would see the most action. Yeah, I guess the payment one is, I've seen a lot of interest there, but uh, still a lot of that seems to be kind of in the pilot phase. Have you seen any big, well, I guess, okay, B2B e-commerce, there's more, but then when we start looking at the IoT space, I think there's a lot of interest, but but still relatively immature. Have you seen anything really take off in that space yet from a payment platform perspective? There are a number of... B2B fintech companies, they are probably more of a, a SaaS tool today. They probably don't actually go end-to-end and are more so plugging into other people's e-commerce environments and enabling, for example, easy trade credit, right? So give me three pieces of information. I'll give you an instant decision on extending you credit or net payment terms. And then I'll make the the payment processing really easy when you're on someone else's e-commerce site or B2B marketplace. But I don't think they've really gone full circle on that to kind of make it a closed loop. And what do I mean by that is, is really where you are bringing the customer 
and the producer together by your own means and right kind of capturing that network effect. These are really just tools that are plugging into other people's customer bases effectively. Doesn't mean they won't get there eventually, but that's what we're seeing a lot of in the kind of more transactional B2B spaces. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I want to get into to details here, looking at um, business model, looking at the kind of, um, you know, build by partner uh, decisions. How do you defend yourself against p- platforms that are encroaching and so forth? But but let's take a step back first and go a bit into your background, because that'll then allow us to approach this from kind of the standpoint of your, your, your experience also working with companies. So 2016, you published this book. But um, you've actually been working in this topic uh, since, I think, 2009, right? So at that point, you, what, you were just graduating from, from college, I suppose, and you had the insight that this is something big. And it's kind of an auspicious year, right? Was that, I think that was Airbnb or Uber? I guess both of them were set up right around that time. What, what was it that really put this on your radar 2009 and, and, and made you think, okay, this is something that I, you know, I can dedicate a significant portion of my life to? Yeah, so back in 2009, back in the early 2010s, no one knew what to call this. There's no explanation for this business model. There's some academics talking about two-sided marketplaces, but they're academics. So they're talking at like 50,000 foot level, very abstract discussion. There's nothing really saying that this is a new business model or this is a business model which has been around for a long time and is now supercharged to be the dominant model of this era. And how does it work? And why is that so? And I started Applico in, in 2009, had some credit cards, was in college, maxed those things out, started making apps, hence the name. Made apps for myself, then started making apps for other companies. And we became one of the biggest app developers in the US. You know, it was in my early 20s, doubling, tripling revenue year over year. I was just living the dream. And um, was working maybe a third of the company we were working with Google and then tech startups. And then the other two thirds was working with large traditional companies, GM, Intel, HP. And we were inside of these companies building technology, right? And it became very clear that these two groups were building technology for completely different reasons and in completely different ways. And I had all, all, all of our product managers coming to me and saying, hey, we need completely different processes, right? Like we need, to, we need to account for these projects very differently. And there was no way to make sense of it, or at least there's no, no one else really making sense of it. So we used that experience as a mechanism to build these frameworks around here are the different types of platform models. Here's what a more commoditized versus non-commoditized marketplace looks like and how you should think about building product differently or what are the four core functions of the platform? How should you handle pricing? Because we were having to deal with it on a day-to-day basis and we were dealing with it across a very wide spectrum of working with different kinds of platform businesses and then working with traditional, what we call linear companies. So that's really what gave us the insight. And then I saw this, reached out to Nick, my co-author. We grew up together, went to elementary school together. And I said, Nick, I don't think anyone has defined this. I don't think anyone's written about this. Nick was an English minor in college. He was working at an econo- economic think tank. I said, 
you know, I, I knew he kind of wanted to write a book. He was very good at writing. I said, you know, if no one has written a book about this, we should. And th- this is a new business model. So he came, read for the first three months, just literally read for three months straight, every single text that kind of talked about the subject and said, yeah, you know, no one has really pulled this all together. No one has really uh, made a something pragmatic and really wraps their arms around what's going on here with with these platform business models. So we went out to do it. And then I basically pivoted the company. Company almost died over the ensuing two or three years, probably about 50 different times. You know, we had a little under 100 people full-time at our peak, went down to less than 10 people full-time. It was a harrowing ride. Very, very difficult. Easily the most difficult thing I've done in my entire life. But I knew that this there was a new business model here and that there was a way to capture a lot of value given what we had essentially written this book about. And I needed to change and and pivot essentially the positioning of the company to properly capture that insight. And it took a long time, a lot, much longer than I thought it was going to take. But yeah, ultimately we came out, we made it. We came out uh, stronger and really, really well positioned to then catapult us into what we do today. Yeah, it was a it was a great journey, and it just keeps getting better. So yeah, okay. So it's really interesting that 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 it was kind of an organic development, right, from your your experience working with companies. I've got to ask, just as an entrepreneur, you know, myself, what was the friction in the business? Was it more market forces? Was it, you know, disruption on the management team? What, what was it that caused this need to reevaluate the business? We were were building technology, and I knew that if you want to continue down that path, you got to go offshore. You got to start to compete on price. Basically, now everyone and their mother can build an app in today's world, right? So. Back in the early 2010s, very different story. But I knew that was changing. And I I didn't really want to compete there. That wasn't really too exciting to me. What was exciting to me was business models and these strategic unlocks. And then what can you do with these insights? And so that's very different. (laughs) It's very different positioning. It's a completely different business model. And um, I didn't know. I mean, you know, you, you kind of just need to go... What I told the team was, hey, we need to change what our definition of success is. Unfortunately, I can't actually give you what the new definition of success is. And we basically need to see, you know, if we're all on a ship, we need to go straight into that eye of the storm. And I don't know if we're going to be able to come out on the other side of the storm. I think we will. I don't know how many of us are going to actually make it through. Maybe some people, you know, get cast overboard. I don't know how many crew are going to make it through the storm. I don't know if the boat will even make it through the storm. I don't know what exactly it's going to look like once we get to the other side of the storm, but we're going through the storm. And that doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence, but I honestly didn't really know how else to communicate it. It was that big of a shift in what I saw as the opportunity for us and and where we could really carve out our own turf and, uh, and create a lot of value and capture a lot of value. And, um, we've now since done it, it's taken, it's taken many years and, uh, we almost died, you know, for over two years, I did not know how to make payroll more than a week out. It was, you know, hand to mouth living for a long time. It was extremely, extremely stressful. 
And I don't know, I just had the conviction that there was something really, really big here and needed to see it through. And at that point, going into the storm, you know, I'd taken some some money from friends and family and I didn't I didn't want to let them down. You know, I basically made a commitment to myself to say, I will do whatever it takes to make it through. And we did. A lot of learnings, could have done a lot of things a lot better, but you would have never really been able to to position yourself in the way that we have unless you went through those hardships. And, you know, you're doing something very new. And um, that comes with a lot of pain. And that comes with a lot of people who, who have worked with you. And that's very painful. And they don't see it. You part ways, either amicably or not. Um, but uh, it's very tough. But that's kind of the founder's journey. I think everyone has the version, their own version of that as a founder where, you know, you're in your earlier days, you kind of see a white hot segment and you say, yeah, we got to go after this. And that can change things that can change that definition of success. And that means that some people that were there under the old definition of success, no longer are inspired or, you know, they, they, they don't see it, they don't believe in it. So for us, it was just a very long journey to figure out what the new definition of success was, which is what made it particularly difficult in our case. And you were coming from a position of having already succeeded to quite a significant degree, right? So, I, I mean, we had in our business zero, zero dollars of revenue for year one, which was very painful. But, you know, that was the status quo. So everything was up, you know, after that. But I, I imagine just mentally going from 100 employees down to rethinking the business is, is, uh, is challenging. But, but let's go into now a, a bit of what, what are you doing today? So, yeah, I mean, it looks like you're... You're doing advisory around uh, building business models. You're doing M&A advisory on acquiring. You're investing, uh, maybe co-investing with, uh, with clients on uh, development of new businesses. Give us the, the, the picture of the business as it sits today. And just one thing. So at one point, I met with Dan Shulman, who is now the CEO of PayPal. And uh, you know, he gave me some very sage advice. It was, you know, Alex, I've never seen a successful startup that didn't go through a, a round of layoffs. And at the time, I, you know, I hadn't really gone through the storm, right? It didn't really resonate with me at the time. But as, as time went on, it sure did resonate. Um, but, you know, you will... The, the journey to success, at least business-wise and in your company, is, is really never, you know, a perfect upward trend. So uh, what we do today is we essentially bring together large traditional enterprises and tech startups. And to answer the question of how do you fight back against these big bad tech monopolies, the answer is your large traditional incumbents and your tech startups need to work together. And the tech monopolies are going after both of those groups, especially because the large tech monopolies can't actually do much M&A anymore. It used to be that they, you know the tech startups could aspire to just be acquired by FAMGA. That really can't happen anymore. So it's now just all out competition. These tech monopolies are just trying to cram everyone and everything down. So you got to work together and we help do that. So you say uh, they, this uh, traditional model of M&A doesn't work so well. Why not? Is it valuations are too high or integration is too challenging? Or what's changed there? One good thing that has changed, our regulators honestly don't know what they're doing. They're just inept, and there's probably some darker forces at play as to, as to why we haven't seen the U.S. actually take any any real or material action 
from a regulatory or legislative standpoint against these tech monopolies. But the one thing that has actually somewhat worked is I think the the scrutiny over tech M&A amongst these large tech monopolies. So there is a fear that has actually successfully landed itself inside of FAMGA that any material acquisition they try and do will be met with some mixture of certainly scrutiny by the regulatory authorities. But probably, honestly, what's more scary to them is the media and the public backlash that will come against them. And some mixture of those two things has definitely changed the mindset inside of the leadership in FAMGA to be a lot more reticent about M&A being a a viable tool in their toolkit, which is great, frankly. Because if you look at FAMGA and how they got to where they are today, once they get to kind of what I would call mid-size platform scale, which still means you could be a you know, $100 billion market cap platform business. But once you kind of get there and you say, how do you, you, know, how do you enter the trillion dollar club or how do you get into the, the high, high hundreds of billions? They have all done it through M&A. Every single one of them, right? Look at Google buying YouTube and Android. Look at Facebook buying Instagram and WhatsApp, right? Look at Amazon buying Ring, buying Twitch. Amazon bought Twitch because Google, because basically Twitch felt that the uh, regulators would blow up the deal if they sold to Google. And that's how Amazon snuck in and was able to buy Twitch, actually for a little less money than what Google was offering. So that's the one thing that has worked so far, is the fear that they can't do it. So... That's really why. Um, They would love to do it. These tech monopolies have more money than they know what to do with. They would love, Zuckerberg would love to just try and go buy Roblox. Like if Zucker, you know, especially Roblox is priced today, Zuckerberg would buy that in two seconds. And Meta would now be light years ahead of where it is today. But he can't do it. There's no way they they would actually be able to close that deal which is great. It means he's got to do it from scratch. And guess what he is doing? He's buying a lot of smaller kind of metaverse-related startups, but these are like $50 million, $100 million acquisitions, right? He's like having to piecemeal it together, which is a much bigger pain and much harder to execute upon successfully. It's very difficult for these companies to truly do organic internal new business model innovation at the size and scale that they are today. So what we do, so that's good. They, they are somewhat handicapped, but, uh, but still have tremendous power. So what we do is we, we say, hey, startups, and hey, large traditional companies, you guys need to work together. What do startups need more than capital these days? Scale. What do large traditional incumbents have a lot of? Scale. Oh, and by the way, they also have some pretty good amounts of capital. And then we figure out for ourselves, how to capitalize on that value by advising the large enterprises, by bringing capital into the, the, the deal structures and pulling capital into the startups that are, you know, uh, receiving this kind of large partnership or, or large new enterprise as a customer or, a, or an investor or a strategic partner. I don't really know what you call us, but... Yeah, we have kind of Applico's advisory business, and then we have our capital business. We do one-off co-investments. We 
actually are just now launching a, a VC fund with committed capital. So yeah, you know, it's a mixture of those things, but at a high level, it's, it's really just bringing these two worlds together. And that's our little way of, of fighting back against big tech. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So let's take this maybe first from the, um, the corporate side, so kind of the, the traditional enterprise side. So I guess they have a few options here, right? They've got the kind of build, build by partner at least, and, and maybe different iterations of that. But they could, uh, you know, they could certainly try to build their own platform, especially if it's something that's, you know, maybe quite niche and, and maybe only addressing you know, their existing customer base. They could collaborate with startups and have some sort of strategic partnership, or they could do an acquisition and buy the company out, try to integrate them. What do you see? I mean, that's at least kind of how I view it. Or it's a very traditional view. How, how do you see the options that they have here? And then, you know, when you're advising them, how do you think through when, you know, option A versus option C might make sense for a particular situation? And those are pretty good summaries. There, there is maybe a third or fourth option, which is just to be a customer of the software. Right. So if you think about two wavelengths, kind of disruptive innovation and what I would call sustaining innovation, disruptive innovation is, hey, what, what's the platform business model? What's the new digital business model coming into my space? Right. But these are large multi-billion dollar companies. They can't forget about sustaining innovation. And that's really where it's a question of just saying, hey, you know what? In my core business, who are the startups that could give me a tool to do my core functions a little bit better? And if you're operating at the scale of billions of dollars, if you can do your core business a little bit better, that actually could make a very big difference. So that's actually what our what our fund is looking at is where should large traditional enterprises not invest, not buy, just use the software. And if we can find startups that are ready to join that kind of billion dollar club or you know have really have really some promising tech that can help these enterprises improve their core business, well, that's a very strong investment thesis for us. And that's kind of sustaining innovation. On disruptive innovation, yeah, kind of build strategic partnership, invest, acquire. These are going to be new digital business models in your industry, which because of the advent of technology and, you know, fragmentation, something of that sort, are giving rise to a new way to do business in your space. There are more, if you are a manufacturer, right, that actually could be applicable. So taking out manufacturers that are just looking to innovate in the product that they're making today, right? This is more about kind of, you would see it in like the distribution of the product, right? The, how do you, how do you interact with customers? How do you disintermediate the distributors that then sell to the end customer. That's where you see a lot of these kind of platform business model and marketplace models, right? So anyway, building is very tough for a large enterprise. It is very difficult. Oh, and by the way, the year is 2022. So that means that not only is it very difficult and it takes a long time, but there are a bunch of tech startups probably doing what you have in mind or something pretty similar to it. <laughs> So do you really have to build, right? Show me the use cases where you say, hey, this is what we want to go and do. And literally no one is doing it or no one is doing something somewhat adjacent to it. And it's very, it's very difficult to actually. So when you look at the ability to build from scratch, that's what we were doing back in 2016, 2017, when the book came out. 
We stopped doing that for all those reasons. 2016, 2017, it was a different environment. And we were doing a lot of B2B marketplaces. We were doing stuff with, uh, with Klockner, which you know had a Harvard business, Harvard business case written about the marketplace that we helped them start. Klockner is one of the biggest metal distributors in, in, the, in Europe and the U.S., we did that build from scratch stuff. We moved away from it, frankly, because we saw how much innovation was out in the startup community and just said, why, why, why compete with this? Let's just embrace this. So, you, you know, what you would call your kind of like corporate venture studios, that's kind of what you would call the build from scratch type of people today. They are very challenged in today's environment, just going to be frank. But the partner invest acquire these startups, there's so many of them. And because there's so many of them, and now especially because you're seeing VC money harder to come by, it's the perfect time for large enterprises to say, hey, I've got scale, I've got capital. How could we look and, and kind of extend an olive branch across the other side to the aisle, you know, across to the other side of the aisle here and collaborate and help out some of these startups? Maybe you don't need to buy them. Maybe you should just partner with them. Maybe you should partner with them and get some warrant coverage because of all the value you're creating for them, right? So there's a lot of ways to structure things, but I would say more often than not, if you're a large enterprise, you should probably be looking more seriously at the not build rather than the build from scratch path. It's just so tough, not just to build the technology, but you're building a completely different business model. And how do, you, how do you do that and really extend enough autonomy to this new business unit, which is only going to lose money for many, many years? So how do you have a tolerance to lose money for many, many years, give it enough autonomy that it can fail? And then you're a big company, like you don't have a high tolerance for failure, especially associated with your brand, right? You have a lot of things working against you versus if you do stuff with existing startups, it's much easier to abstract away that brand risk. Say, hey, yeah, we're partnering with this startup, right? Like, but it's not really us. But yeah, we're partnering with them. So if something goes wrong, like, you have some separation. And, um, and you already have a team, you already have some product market fit, you already have some traction that can help give you some more confidence. And it can shorten your your lifespan to get to some point of material scale because you have these large companies. They're not waiting around forever. You look at the average tenure of a CEO, it's not five years. You want to go build a new business from scratch? Five years is like, yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm just starting to actually see some things work here. So you add that all up, it's, it's, a, difficult, um, it's a difficult proposition to really do build successfully, given all the alternatives uh, that I think are just becoming more and more attractive, especially in a market where tech valuations have just gotten massive haircuts and I think you're going to continue to have some pretty nice haircuts. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And I, I think your, your point about this fourth model of just using a technology often is uh, underappreciated, but uh, you know, in, in many cases, just the best, the best uh, solution is to say, well, okay, there's new distribution platforms. Let's just get really good at using them. That's enough for our business. But um, if we if we look a little bit more at this um, engagement, you know, with the kind of strategic, whether there's investment or not, but strategic engagement with startups. I mean, another challenge that I've come across quite often is this just fundamental competitive challenge of you, you're, you're a construction equipment manufacturer selling construction equipment, and you'd love to have a platform business where you can you build kind of the Uber of construction equipment. 
but you can't do it because that company needs to have equipment from 20 different OEMs on it. And you're not willing to allow your competitors to be on your platform or they're not willing to come on your platform. Um, so you just can't do it, right? Because of your position in the industry, your legacy position. Even if you go through the collaboration approach, sometimes that can also be a tension, right? Of saying, okay, if we're going to invest in you, then you can't allow our our two top competitors onto your platform and so forth. So there can be also some some dynamics there. I mean, how do you, from an advisory standpoint, how do you address these challenges of kind of competitive positioning when, you know, maybe the ideal situation is to say, no, let's do what's, what's long-term, you know, best. And, and that's to open up a little bit and, uh, you know, and, and, and that's going to create more value for everyone. It's going to create a, a bigger pie and it's going to position ourselves, but there's going to be maybe some cannibalization. There's, you know, we're, we're maybe opening up some opportunity space for competitors uh, in the short term, which can be a really difficult thing for the legacy organization to accept. I mean, how, how do you think through those um, considerations when a company is looking at it, maybe investing in a platform or strategically partnering in and supporting the growth of, uh, of a platform? Every single one of these things has what you would call channel conflict. And there's multiple ways to handle that. There are many now examples of just in construction, manufacturers, brands doing tech deals. I'll give you a few. You had Hilti buy a kind of like project management collaboration tool. Could be really considered a platform for helping people collaborate on the job site called Fieldwire last fall for $300 million. You just had literally like two weeks ago, Stanley Black & Decker bought this company called M-Suite, which is somewhat similar, smaller, and, and kind of in a slightly different niche, but directionally somewhat similar strategy. They charge a, a SaaS fee to their users, right? So those are not product marketplaces out of the box. Obviously now, Hilti and Stanley Black & Decker are going to then plug in some better procurement capabilities now that they've just bought these tools. Both of those strategies are actually just to provide software to enable your customer. And that generally is the theme that we see across the board is how do you just provide software to enable the customer? And there's a lot of different ways to do that. These are kind of more collaboration type tools. Then you have Schneider Electric just invested, minority investment, in a company called Reno Run in the US, which is basically like Instacart for building materials. So like same day delivery to the job site of construction materials, like, like they'll go to Home Depot and like, (laughs) you know, bring you stuff that, oh, I forgot this. And then they'll bring it to your job site, right? So Schneider now just invested in them. So that's another thing, another piece of technology being used by the end customer. And now a different, they didn't buy it but invested in it and now have a strategic relationship with Reno Run. So those are, let's see, a couple of examples. Another one is you had Standard Industries and Home Depot invested in a company called Hover. Hover is a tool for really roofers to, you know, use their phone and do like an estimate of the roof. You know, how much shingle does it need? What's this going to cost, right? And just to to kind of use the image recognition from the phone. Really cool company, now worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Now the top three roofing distributors 
all use Hover's software. But you would have thought, hey, Home Depot invested in this, right? Why are roofing distributors going to go use Hover? Like Home Depot and Standard Industries. Standard Industries is probably a little less threatening to the roofing distributors. But that is channel conflict in spades. Yet still, Hover was able to build such a good product that they were able to get the big three to, to use them in a, in, a, in a pretty strategic way. And then you have to ask yourself, I mean, Home Depot, they're an investor. They probably don't have the breakout of exactly what, how much business, how much volume, you know, each of these three distributors are, are doing on Hover. But they have to have some idea at a high level to say, oh, well, hmm, this was Hover's revenue before signing up the big three. And here was their revenue after signing up, right? Like they're going to have some directional insight into the big three roofing distributors business. And Home Depot is coming after all these guys aggressively. So you are able to see scenarios. Uh, oh, I'll give you another one. I don't even forget about this. Builders First Source, the largest building material distributor in the country, bought a company called Paradigm last summer for $450 million. Easily the largest tech acquisition by a B2B distributor in the U.S. by far. That has a lot of channel conflict, probably more than Hover. Because all these, all the distributors and contractors or a lot of them would use Paradigm's tools. Also, Paradigm would provide somewhat similar to a field wire, but different, right? Providing tools to contractors. Distributors would use the tools as well, right? So kind of providing estimating tools and, and workflow management tools and kind of just right software to enable both the customer, in this case, you know, contractors and the distributors. But what you will see from the naysayers is that, well, builders just bought this company, spent all this money, and now, now no one's going to trust it, right? Now paradigm is tainted. But they said the same thing when Hover took money from Home Depot. And now Hover works with the big three roofing distributors, right? So it's a race. It's a race basically against how much value can the tech company create? How much value? And, and, and can they create some more value given this now strategic investor or strategic buyer versus an alternative, some substitute out in the market to provide a viable alternative that people that feel uncomfortable with some channel conflict could then go and use. And that's the race. That's basically the bet, right? But uh, what we've seen so far is we've actually seen, because there's so much fragmentation in these industries, the people that actually care about the channel conflict are the larger players, but those larger players don't command enough market share, where even if they stopped using it, which even for them, it's difficult to stop using the tool if it's if it is well embedded into their workflow. And very often these large enterprises are somewhat decentralized. So they don't actually make the decision sometimes at HQ. It's kind of more on a branch level. So it's actually difficult to say, hey, everyone stop using Paradigm, right? <laughs> a, because you don't actually have all that control as much as you would like from a centralized decision-making authority. B, what's the alternative? And this is going to cause a lot of heartache to replace Paradigm if, you, if you've already been using it for a while. And then the other thing is the industry is fragmented, right? So if you, I haven't looked at Paradigm's books, but the industry is so fragmented that if the, say, if the, 
if Builder's biggest two competitors stopped using Paradigm, but can Paradigm make that up by just getting more penetration with the rest of the building material industry because it is very fragmented? Probably, right? And so that's really the the tough part. And that's why these business models are successful is because of fragmentation. Because even if the industry could make a decision, you know, it could be in the industry's best best decision, best interest to say, you know what, we should not use Amazon business at all. We just shouldn't, shouldn't use it because Amazon's going to screw us. Maybe not today, but tomorrow they're going to screw us. But you can't, you know, you can't convince everyone to do that. It's too fragmented. And that's how these things get traction. And that's how these things kind of get a foothold. And it's very hard to stamp them out. It's interesting also, I mean, a lot of the cases that you're mentioning are, they're very niche platforms, right? And I think that's great. I mean, it's really kind of an interesting development that we were starting to see a lot more people building very successful platforms by going really deep into a fairly narrow niche. It allows them to be really excellent at what they do. And it makes it a lot more difficult for there to be real alternative competitors, right? Because that niche can you know can often only support a couple platforms maybe so it means that if these distributors or these uh, these players want to look for an alternative it's likely that they're going to be looking at some very young startup or they're going to be looking at building something organically but there's not going to be you know three or four other medium you know medium to large kind of alternatives on the market that they can choose from that's kind of been an interesting development in the platform space where you looked, I don't know, five years ago, and there was just a lot of companies building manufacturing platforms that all kind of looked the same. And, and it was just kind of an obvious thing to do. And maybe that's starting to consolidate now. But then since then, you've had hundreds of, of platforms be born that focus on really specific niches, focusing on solving you know, problems for just kind of traditional, you know, workers, or, you know, in different uh, in different uh, verticals, the fact that they're willing to kind of define their scope quite narrowly makes them, I think, a lot more defensible in these scenarios where there might be some conflict than you know, like um, kind of an MES substitute or something, right? Where you you have so many different alternatives on the market, there's always going to be you know be options there. How, if you look going forward, do you see? I mean, I guess there's kind of both a proliferation of of new platforms, and then there's also consolidation going on at the same time. But what are the big trends that you see in the platform market if you look, you know, forward five years or so? I think you're seeing more vertical specific marketplaces as we've been talking about. You know, maybe over the next say ten years, you should you should probably see some new development platforms actually actually be a thing. You know, you've seen some development platforms we've been talking about here, AWS, Salesforce. But I think you're going to see the ability for a rise of new development platforms could be in the car, could be more in kind of the manufacturing space with, you know, a lot of the uh, 3D printing technologies that are coming out. And what's that, what that, or, or automated kind of, robotic assembly tools and and systems that are being manufactured those would would be really great additions to unleash creativity and innovation from a software perspective right 
if you kind of look at the iPhone, yeah, we, I mean, we've had the iPhone for over a decade. What's the new app you're going to go and build, right? We've had the internet for over 20 years. What's the new website you're going to go and build? It's, it's kind of difficult. So I think you're starting to see development platforms that have been in production or been trying to get some traction, but hopefully over the next 10 years, we'll see that really kind of uh, gain a lot of traction. Otherwise, in the marketplaces, yeah, you're seeing these are massive industries, right? Food distribution is over a $100 billion industry in the US. You've probably got 20 B2B food marketplaces just in the US. You know, I think you're seeing overall, you're seeing B2B be much more ahead of the curve than where we were on B2C, where you really just had, you know, a few juggernauts that, that got out in front and were able to just capture such an oversized share of the market. In B2B, I think you are seeing a more competitive environment, which is which is good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, B2B is naturally more fragmented and, and that, that provides some defensibility. Cool. Well, so what haven't we touched on yet that is uh, important for people to understand around the platform business? I think we covered a lot of ground. Cool. Well, Alex, um, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. One more time. What is your uh, the name of your your podcast again? And then if folks want to get in touch with you to discuss further, what's the best way for them to reach out? The podcast is called Winner Take All. We're on all the audio platforms and YouTube and elsewhere. And um, if you want to reach out, you can probably just go to our website, applicoinc.com. And and uh, I don't really like to use Twitter, but that's that's another story. So, okay, thanks, Alex. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into another edition of the IoT Spotlight podcast. If you find these conversations valuable, please leave us a comment and a five-star review. And if you'd like to share your company's story or recommend a speaker, please email us at team at iot1.com. Finally, if you have an IoT research, strategy, or training initiative that you would like to discuss, you can email me directly at erik.walenza at iot1.com. Thank you.